what's happening in the canine industry. For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Hey, you know what we haven't done for a long time? Dance together. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we can arrange that. But the other thing we haven't done for a long time is new ads. Yeah, okay, let's do that. Yeah, let's do that. All right, we've got to start with the OG. We always start with the OG. Yeah. But he's good to start with. The odds are wiener. Yep. The wiener himself. Yep. The original sponsor of the show, Mm. the man who wanted to sponsor us from episode one and we told him to fuck off and then later we're like, hey, we'll take some of that money now, please. (laughs) Grumpiest but most lovable prick you could ever meet in your life. Yeah, it's the Einz wiener. Yep. Jason Furman, Mm. Einzwick Dog Quip. If you're in Australia, that's where you're getting your stuff. Yeah. Crazy if you don't get pretty much. If you want dog stuff, get it from there. Have you seen that he hand makes a lot of his stuff as well? I've seen that. He tags me in his Instagram. I know. Me too. I see it. He's using his sewing machine. Yep playing his songs. He's really embracing social media these days. Yep. He used to have nothing at all, yep. a shit website, yep. but now, now he's got a working website and social media. I like watching him use his sewing machine. Next thing I know, he'll be making linen on a loom. <laughs> who knows? <laughs> hey, you know who else sponsors the show? Who? Your wife. She does. Yeah. Canine Suticles. Yep. The best dog suticles. <laughs> the best canine suticles. Premium grade, yep. human quality. Yeah. It's going gangbusters at the moment. Thank you to the community who have been supporting yep. it. Yeah, it's great shit. There's been hot demand for her to get this all over the world. Like mm-hmm. people are asking her from every country. She's looking into it at the moment. Okay. So that's going to happen. All right. I caught up with George Kittridge and saw the actual Rowdy Hound box. I know. Yeah. So I had a good talk with George actually about his process in getting this thing to market. Yep. It's a motherfucker. So you should, if you want one, you should get one because George has put a lot of work into turning this dream into a reality. He did so much R&D, didn't he? Oh, huge. And yeah. the, the product is amazing. Yep. So and he's got one. training videos, everything showing he trains and supports people how to get the dog into it, yep. how to make it safe, yep. how to make the dog have a good experience from so it. So if you ride a motorbike and you have a dog, you need the Rowdy Hound dog box on the back of that motorbike. Absolutely. Next, Fabian Romo. Yes. He's got a shop, Mojo. And you've seen it. I've been in there. You've I stolen stole a tug. Stuff. Yeah. I stole a tug. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'd said as I was leaving, I'm taking this. Yep. So I guess it doesn't count. But yeah. Mojo Doggy. Did you pay for it? I mean. With your time. Yeah. So it's not really a theft. Yeah. Okay. Everything's fine. If you need dog gear in North America, that's where to get it. Mojo. Yeah. yeah. They've got everything. What he has, to be honest, is the best dog trainer's shop. Yep. It's without a doubt the best shop that I've walked into where you can buy actual dog trainer gear. Yep. Yeah. High quality e-collars, mills, leashes, you know, all that's the impressive. things. Like proper tugs, like all the actual things that yep. real dog trainers use. Mm. Mojo. Get it there. We have a new sponsor also. We do. Yeah. Daniel Trapino. Trapino. Yeah, that yeah. sounds about Daniel right. Daniel Trapino. It's Dog Club, South yeah. Australia. Yeah. What does he do there? It's kind of like a little hangout hood that he's created there. A little cultural hub. A cultural hub in South Australia. So I think that's what Daniel was trying to go for, was to try and embrace and build the culture in South Australia. Because I will be honest, it's been sadly lacking for many, many years. Mm. Like not much really canine came out of South Australia. So I think it doesn't mean there aren't good dog trainers down there. There's some very good dog trainers and personalities down in South Australia, but they've never really 
elevated it. And I think that's what Daniel wants to do. He really wants to push it out into the public forefront. Get in there, South Australians. Get into the Dog, dog Club. Club SA. We must never forget Dan Croft. Dan Croft in Canada. What a good yeah. bloke he is. I love speaking to Dan as well. Yeah. Great facility. Great facility. Really emphasizing his puppy training programs. Mm-hmm. I just put an ad up today on Instagram showing a little Doberman doing his little course running around, but that's what he really wants to emphasize on the critical period of development in young dogs and puppies. But it's not only that. I mean, it's all working breeds. As I've said before, as you've said before, very impressive to watch all of these dogs on BOSU balls, balancing and all of the breeds that other people usually are shying away from. He's got like a whole room full of them there. Great shop, great setup, great social media. I really like the Dan Croft setup. Our last person. Who? Barbara DeGroote. Oh, lovely Barbara. Yeah, the sugar mama. From the heart dog training. Yeah. She didn't really want to emphasize. She just said, here, have some cash. Yeah, so we just want to say thank you, Barbara. We do want to say thank you, Barbara. Thank you for supporting us. You're wonderful. We do love you. On with the show. Indeed. Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. I'm at my house, but I'm joined by my co-host, who's in the studio, Glenn Cook. Your co-host. <laughs> <laughs> Give me a break. We just spent 20 minutes trying to get enough internet to make this happen. I know. It was a bit of a fucked up session, but we got there in the end. We did the family guy. How are you, sir? I'm good. How are you? I'm wonderful. You've had a busy week. I've had a very busy week, particularly with getting Michael Ellis seminar sorted out with Alex. Sold out in less than 24 hours, both sides. That's cool. That's exciting. I'm not surprised. It's Michael Ellis. That was actually funny. I put up the greatest of all time, Michael Ellis, and somebody in the comments goes, oh, yeah, I wouldn't say he's the greatest of all time, but he's a close second. I just put one of those memes of somebody eating popcorn up in there and they responded by, I wouldn't dare. There's a lot of reasons why I think Michael is, in my opinion, one of the greatest of all time. I won't say the I'll succumb to saying one of the greatest of all times. And I think we've covered a lot of these points off over time, but there's so many things about Michael that's just not to love about the guy. Number one, he's one of the nicest people you'd ever meet. And I genuinely mean that. Like he's definitely one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet. Number two, he's like a staple that many of us grew up on. Many people, myself included, you know, like we've followed along with a lot of the best things that we learned about shaping and chaining exercises, good communication skills in the industry were fundamentally put through Learberg and Michael Ellis. And those sort of things are just amazing to think that he's been in the industry that long. He's nurtured a lot of dog trainers into the industry, both local to him in the United States around the world. If anybody doesn't know who Michael Ellis is, they must be living under a rock. Even recent or in the last 30 years, it would be incredible for people not to know who he is. The other thing I really like about Michael too, he is genuinely a great guy. Like, as I said before, there's lots of people who appear like they're great people on social media, but you meet them in real life and it's like, oh, if only. But with Michael, there's just... (laughs) It's not a fairy tale with him. He's a great person to deal with. Like he's so good to deal with, even just trying to organize things. He's timely. He makes time to show up. He's professional. He's so courteous. He's a real wee person too. There's a few people in the industry who I really admire because 
they're real we people. They're real cultural development people. They're not about, oh, that's mine. I'm going to take that for me and I'm going to furnish that for me. They're people that give and keep giving and give to the community and help and want to see the community grow. And those sort of things are extremely impressive because we're really encouraged to be a me culture, take, take, and keep taking. It's nice to see old school people like that who are really enthusiastic about wanting to see other people succeed, wanting to see other people get up, wanting to see the community thrive and prosper. I really admire him for it for a long time. I'm not just saying that because the guy's coming out here. I'm just saying it. I've always spoken fondly about Michael. I just don't know anybody that's got a bad thing to say about Michael because he's never put himself in a position to have that sort of backlash against him. He's generally the greatest of all time. Yeah, I'm super excited to see him. It'll be very exciting. I think what's interesting with Mike is that he probably was the foundation of, you know, if you got into dog training, say 15 years ago, 15 to 20 years ago, like there's a very good chance that he was the foundation of all of your early imprinting and learning. Yeah, that's what Um, I mean. He's the staple. Yeah, like those early Lieberg DVDs were, Mm. you know, all that was available. This is pre-streaming and, you know, before everybody had an online course. And so he really was the first very digestible and very good teacher that had easily available content. So many people, everything that they know has been built on a foundation developed by him. So I'm, I'm excited to see him. It'll be great. And just before that, I just want to add into this as well. That we've also got Cameron Ford coming out in July. So he's coming out again to do his Oda Pays and also his Cognition tour. He's got quite a few venues booked throughout Australia and you can find them online. They're in their canine paradigm discussion group for sure. But I just want to give a big ups to Cameron because Cameron was really instrumental in making this Michael Ellis tour happen as well. The last time he was here, Cameron and I were chatting about it. He made it happen. He went over there and he said, hey, I'm going to get over there when I get back. I'm going to message you. I'm going to have Michael. We're going to sit down. We're going to make this happen. We're going to arrange it. So I really want everybody to acknowledge that Cameron was a huge instrumental push in making this happen. And again, another one of these people who's a a huge advocate for helping other people out all the time. Cameron's a great guy. He stayed here the last time he was here. We probably had about four or five days together. And then we did the scent detection conference where you were there as well. And Cameron, he's just nicest guy easy to look after. He's not a pretentious pain in the ass. And not many people who've been out here have been like that anyway, but just great, great soul of the earth people and really excited to have them back in the country. Great to see Cameron again. So guys, if you want to level up your scent game, get onto it, book your tickets. Like I said, he'll be down there with Alex. He'll be up here with me. Then he's doing the canine cognition up in, in Queensland with Becky again. So Make it happen. Don't tell me about the problems that you've never got access to, great information and all these people. I'm staring at NDTF people while I'm saying this because they come to the teaching and then at the end or even at the start, they say to me, oh, we never get a chance. It's too expensive to go overseas. you got the opportunities, guys. Even got you, Pat, where they should be going to your seminars as well if they're not. Just had Josh Moran. Josh Moran was just in the country. Quickly before we get onto our subject, I just want to say that he was down in Melbourne and he was only doing Melbourne and Brisbane this time and then heading off to a trip away with his lovely partner, Jess. I was talking to him while he was down at Alex's place and I had to go up to Brisbane to work out with with our training staff up there and then drive to the Sunshine Coast to our other location where we've got a new trainer that just started and we also had the local media out there to do a story on our Monday Pet Resort site, which was really exciting. 
while I was there, Josh found out I was going to be in your Monday and made time to come over and catch up with me. So I was really ecstatic to catch up with Josh. He's just such a super nice bloke and great to see him back in the country again. That's cool. It That's really awesome. was. So you have a topic. Yeah, I have a topic. I believe it's something that we've chatted about in between other topics, but I really want to enhance a little bit of this and start talking about it a bit more because every time I do a training session with NDTF guys and we start getting into the meat of training and we move between phases or modes or principles or whatever you want to call it, there's many people who love changing the name around because they like to have their own language as we've been discussing for multiples of years now. But we usually call it the phases of training. So in between the phases of training, we call it a transition. And again, that may differ from teaching camp to teaching camp. But for all intents and purposes, we're going to call it the transition. It's easy to think about. It's understandable. And it relates a lot to what actually happens between the phases of training. As we know, we start off with the teaching or the learning phase in training where we're, let's not talk about teaching for abstinence, we're going to talk about teaching for action. So we're going to talk about the architecture of new behavior, teaching the dog to learn something that we want it to learn. So it's beneficial to us. It's some form of obedience that we want to build around. So it's the beginning stages of teaching anything. Let's keep it simple. Let's make it sit. Dogs know how to sit in the wild. They've been doing it for a millennia before humans have been in contact with them. But when we want to do it, we want to pair it with a word. The cue that we generally give them, when we say a word, it's going to be a cue. The cue that we generally give them in English is sits, but then it starts to differ from language to language. That's something that we proficiently discuss when we're in class anyway. We get usually get people who speak a variation of different languages and we ask them, what is sit in your language? What's it in yours? What's it in yours? And generally speaking, NDTF is very multicultural. We'll have people from Asia. We have people from Spain, Italy, France, all over the place. There is always a variation in the cue given. So people will say what it means then, but it's exactly the same action. So whatever teaching principle you want to work on and whatever cue you want to give them, as long as the dog understands the pairing process and the actual behavior that you want it to complete, and then operantly what's in it for them at the end of the day, that's fine. So let's say, for example, I'm going to talk about compulsion training now, guidance training, where I'm actually putting hands on the dog and shifting the dog into a position. So yes, we can lure, but I just want to talk about compulsion now. So in the course, we teach both. We teach people how to lure and we teach people how to compel or guide a dog in position. Once we start doing this pragmatically on and off, after a period of time, the students will ask the question, okay, so when the dog is doing this, How do we know that we don't need to do it any longer? Like what is the tell? The tell that we generally see in these positions is you see the dog gaining acquisition of the behavior. After a period of time, let's say, for example, I'm holding the collar in my right hand and I put my left hand down on the croup or the rump of the dog and we gently roll the dog in position. So we give the cue, we say the word sit or whatever cue you want to give We then place the dog in position. We wait for the dog to calm. Then what we do is we mark the dog and treat the dog out of position. We just repeat this behavior again and again and again. What the transition looks like in this phase, going between teaching or learning into training, 
is eventually what you'll start to see the dog is shifting its whole paradigm of thinking. Instead of having to wait for you to do the actual contact with the dog, you'll go to do it and the dog will see what you're going to do. And just as you start giving the cue, the dog will, it looks a bit rickety and a bit unorthodox, but the dog will then start to slowly place itself in that position. That is exactly, in my mind, if I'm doing the teaching, that's exactly what I like to explain even better, what I like them to witness themselves a dog doing. And we generally do that. We take a dog that's pretty much raw dough. We take the dog in as many days as it needs to take. And we just allow the dog in its own time and pace to finally work out, this is what you want me to do. You can actually see the lights start to flicker. Like they actually start to come on in the dog's brain and the dog becomes aware. That's why I mean the point of acquisition. They generate acquisition of what's happening. They hear the cue and they try and attempt to do the behavior. Generally, when that happens, the other question that I get asked is, can you punish during that stage? The answer to that is I wouldn't. I would wait and I would allow, because we start talking about operant conditioning, I should insert that there. So what I generally say to the students is I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't be punishing for that point in time because the dog wouldn't, I wouldn't say that the dog is truly operant. You are between strides. So it's a small window, but nonetheless, it's a very important window and something you've got to pay a lot of attention to and take it in your stride and allow the dog to transition fully over from one phase where it's learning or you're teaching the behavior until a completely new phase where now you can then say, Now I can see you understand it. You have full comprehension of it. You have full ownership of what's about to happen here. Now I could say that you are truly operant. Now I could say if you don't do this behavior within a set and agreed period of time, then also a punishment can start taking place here if you choose not to do the behavior. All right. Well, I've been yammering on about it. I'd like to hear your thoughts. I think maybe we use slightly different language. Well, we definitely do use different language when we're teaching that. So like I call it a teaching phase. After that, I think what you would call a training phase, I sort of refer to just going to a variable schedule of reinforcement. And you can't do that while the dog's learning because if the dog hasn't got it, then you can't go to a variable schedule yet because you can't be sure that they actually understand it and you might be pushing extinction too early. I agree with you. I think that the way that you can assess whether you're ready to leave that learning phase or what you would call a training phase is that you give the command, the dog does it. And I would suggest within your learning environment, because the moment you increase distance duration or distraction, then it's all going to fall apart. So like I have my set environment in which I'm going to be teaching this behavior and I'm going to continually expand that out and generalize and take it different places and sort of acknowledge that even though I might've been at the intermittent schedule of reinforcement where sometimes I'm paying, sometimes I'm not, and I'm beginning to chain behaviors together and asking for, you know, strings of behaviors that is going to be like, you know, perhaps I could do that in one environment, but not in another because the dog's not ready for that. And so I have to acknowledge that when I get there, I go back down to my learning phase. I think as well, like I don't, I wouldn't use the term punishment there. Like for me, I think that if I ask the dog to do it and it doesn't do it, then a pressure that makes it happen in that moment is probably still I'm putting in the category of negative reinforcement. But I think what we would do is the same, but I think it's just sort of wordplay at that point. But yeah, I think that If you are teaching behaviors and you are using compulsion or negative reinforcement of any kind, I think that it just becomes a case of the learning phase is self-apparent because if I'm teaching it and I say the command and then I help the dog into the position and they get to the point where I say the command and the dog beats me before I get the opportunity to apply any pressure to bring him into the position, 
when I change the location or I change the distance or the, the duration or the distractions, whatever it is, if I ask the dog to do it and he doesn't beat me into the position, then at that point, then I'm just back to using negative reinforcement again to help them guide into the position. I, I, like I don't really draw a distinction if I'm going to use any form of compulsion like I don't necessarily draw a distinction between in this phase, I will give a correction or not because I'm always able to do that if I am using negative reinforcement. Like I'm going to say the command and then within a second, I'm going to give the help that leads onto the behavior. The only difference that sort of comes with that is when I am very confident the dog knows the behaviors and I'm at you know a variable schedule of reinforcement where the dog would beat me and I'm very confident the dog will do it we usually end up referring to as the tap that acts as a reinforcer of the command. So like, you know, sometimes the pressure at the same time as the command, especially I find that especially sort of necessary when the dog is still doing the behaviors, but it's kind of like, it's the power up. And it's something that it took me a long time to understand like how and why you would do that. And it wasn't until that I heard someone use the analogy of when you see uh, football players waiting to go into the field, that they've got the coach has their hand on their shoulder and you know they show full intent to run onto the field. The moment that the sub crosses the line, they're going to run straight back on, but they still get that tap on the shoulder as they go. And so sometimes I find it very helpful to give the dog that same tap with, you know, whether it is like, you know, my hands that I'm using to get the dog into position or some form of collar, that tap that accompanies the command acts as like, it's kind of like cheating in the game or the, ne- the game of negative reinforcement, right? Where it's like, I got you at the same time. And it reminds the dog, this is the pressure that accompanies you into the behavior. Mm, lot to unpack there. I certainly agree with that power up. I've heard you use that analogy last week. I think when Chad was doing the episode with us, And I thought that's actually a really salient way of really describing how it actually works and how the psychological change occurs in the student at the time or the player in the time, because you're right, I've experienced that myself. You know, like even in boxing, I remember my old coach used to give you a little slap in the face. When people hear that, they go, what would you do that for? But it wasn't a slap in the face to hurt you. It was a slap in the face, like to wake you up, like to to supercharge you. And it did. It had the desired effect. Like you get that little pop and your pupils would dilate and you'd really come alive and you'd think, yeah, now I'm ready to go. You know, like the coach just gave me a big pep talk and then he gave me that little pap just before I went in. And it always had the desired effect. On me it did anyway and I saw it with other people. You just give them a little crack and all of a sudden they sort of wake up out of their concern of thinking about their opponent. They'd wake up to what was actually going on around them. One thing I wanted to talk about before is when we were talking about the use of punishment in training phase, I want to sort of hash that out with my way of thinking as well, because I certainly agree with you that negative reinforcement is a companion that follows us around in many of the phases that we're actually working with dogs. So let's say, for example, we're in teaching phase. Negative reinforcement, it's a companion. It's there with you most of the time. So for example, if I'm placing a dog in position up until that point in time where we're waiting for the dog to relax and comply with what we're doing, and then we let the dog go, that's a form of negative reinforcement. That's one of the first forms of negative reinforcement that the dog is absolutely going to experience. And then when we start talking about punishment, when we're starting to withhold reinforces and so forth, then we can get into the nitty gritty and say, well, we're using negative punishment during that point in time. It starts to get into gray areas when people want absolutes. And that has come up a couple of times when people have said to me, oh, well, what happens when you withhold food? Because you've told me that's negative punishment. 
And I've said, yeah, you're right, it is. It's a form of negative punishment. If the dog understands that its behaviour is not going to allow the food to come at a certain given time, then, yeah, it can be perceived as a negative punishment for sure. I totally agree with you on that point in time. However, when we do get into talking about positive punishments, like talking about the use of corrections, there are times, certainly when I'm doing it, and colleagues of mine, we've been discussing this in points before, I definitely agree with you that a majority of times we're using a lot of negative reinforcement and it's been confused with what positive punishment is. However, there are times where I teach and we we do talk about it when a dog has a full comprehension of the exercise it's going to do. However, it's chosen not to for whatever reason that may be. And let's say, for example, the dog is still in a low stim environment. So you've got the dog effectively in a shed type Skinner box and you've said to the dog sit and the dog has just phased out. It's just looked over your shoulder. At that point in time, I will give the dog a correction. I will give the dog a short, sharp pop on the lead. It's not hard. It's not about lighting the dog up or giving the dog like this incredibly horrendous correction, but it is to say to the dog, you pissed around, you fucked up. You're going to get in trouble for that. It's not tolerable to do that. Now, the debate has been, I think you have and other people have said, well, I would call that negative reinforcement because it's a small amount of pressure, but it's not really to get the dog to immediately do the behavior again. It's to let the dog know if you don't do that, that's a consequence of what's going to happen to you next time. When people hear that, they go, oh, wow, oh, that sounds a bit harsh. I don't know how I feel about that. However, in my opinion, I feel that's why a majority of dogs that I see misbehave for their owners because their dog doesn't have anything to go off the back of. The way that I kind of compare it, and again, we can dance around this whole positive punishment, negative reinforcement aspect, is if a horse is in a paddock and there's an electric fence on and that horse touches the wire, it only happens a couple of times before the horse fully comprehends and understands, I don't want to touch that wire anymore. And that's where we can get into the negative reinforcement positive punishment stage, but it's intense enough for the horse to understand, I don't want to do that again. I don't want to go back into that territory. I want to stop doing that. Even when we're doing it, when we're working with the dogs and we're teaching them, what we want them to do is not immediately go into the behavior and then get rewarded for doing it. But we want the dog to think that's going to happen if I don't comply with a known command, like I've made a choice not to, a salient choice not to do the behavior. Then At that point in time, we give the dog another opportunity. So let's say outside 10 seconds, so the dog has got disassociation with what happened. We then give the dog the opportunity to do it again. I find that when you do that correctly, the dog will comply immediately. And then the dog doesn't have to worry about being punished or negative reinforcement or anything like that. It goes straight into being positively reinforced. It's over. It's done. It's clean. It's nice and effective. And the dog goes, all right, cool. I understand what happens as a result of that. Interested on your thoughts on that. It's a rabbit hole to go down. Like for sure, I think determining the difference between whether you're using negative reinforcement and positive punishment is very important because they have separate outcomes. Yes. So if there's any way to turn off the pressure, if there's anything specific that the dog can do, then that's negative reinforcement. Negative reinforcement can be escaped and then avoided. Punishment can only be avoided. And so I suppose to answer the the semantics of the question is that if you ask a dog to sit and it doesn't, and then you you know, give it the collar pop and it does sit, then that's undoubtedly negative reinforcement mm-hmm. because the dog did the thing that you asked it to do. I suppose the case is though, if you ask the dog to do something, it doesn't, you give it that collar pop and it still doesn't go into the behavior, but you then go to like a reset. 
then that would be a case for calling that punishment. And the only instance in which you can actually punish sort of in that, you know, is when you can be sure that it is deliberate disobedience. Absolutely. I entirely agree with you that. And that's why I said that it has to be very clear and salient in the, in the mind of the dog and also in the operator that at that point in time, as soon as you see that choice that the dog has made, I'm not going to do this, I'm going to defy it, then at that point in time, you have to consider using uh, a positive punisher. Otherwise, the dog will experiment with that behavior or that choice in behavior again. Yeah. But I think it's pretty rare that you get that. I think anyway, that when the motivation piece is taken care of, and that's why for me, I spend so much time harping on about building the correct motivation and not bothering to train a dog unless you've got that dog dialed in and all that, because it's very rare that you ever get a dog that just goes like, nah, I'm not doing that. That's not happening. Because if you've taught it in a way where they understand what's in it for them, they're motivated for the reinforces that you have. And from my point of view, I wouldn't be training anything if I didn't already build that. Like that's step one for me is getting all of that. So if I didn't have that, then I wouldn't be asking the dog to do something and expecting that my positive reinforcer works if I haven't first, you know, assessed that the dog even wants my positive reinforcer and that it in fact is going to function as a positive reinforcer. That's why I think for the most part, it's kind of a moot point because it, it, for me, I think that if a dog just goes like, nah, I'm just not doing that. Like there's no way I'm not doing that. Then it's pretty rare that I am, am going to even continue on in that moment and, and continue using that form of positive reinforcement in that session, given the states of arousal and blah, 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 blah. Mm. That's not to say I'm not going to continue the session. Like it would be that then I'm like, okay, well, like maybe this is a session that I, this is cause for more negative reinforcement. I'm going to layer that over the top. And I think that the distinction between like, it's kind of irrelevant. It's something that I used to sort of harp on. You know, I used to dive into this a lot more and sort of try and understand the distinction between negative reinforcement and positive punishment in terms of a correction. And now I don't, because I just think that for me, like there's a kind of a flow chart that I go through in my head about which one I'm going to use. And, and in order for it to be punishment, it, it has to be essentially the dog knows the behavior their dog, it has to be deliberate disobedience where the dog goes like, no, I am not doing that in spite of the fact that I know full well what you're asking me to do. And the only reason that I would typically ever have that happen is because of some like strong competing motivator. Usually it would only be because like I've asked the dog to do one thing and the dog has an in intent on doing something else. And that would be cause for punishment in that moment. You know, there's big risk. There is huge risk. This is actually, you know, it's in our Patreon. We did it last month. Like it's the the speech that I gave at the ISCP. There, there's huge risk in in mixing up the two when you are trying to get rid of a behavior. Mm. I think that, like we we often talk about, it's an interesting conversation for you and I to have if you ask a dog to sit and it doesn't do it and then you give it a collar pop and then it does. Is that negative reinforcement or is that punishment? And and like for the most part, I think it's negative reinforcement, but, I, you know, I, I can make a pretty strong case for the opposite. But I think it's kind of irrelevant, you know, like it's pressure that brings on the behavior. But where it becomes much more important is when you're trying to just get rid of a behavior. And I think that it's something that we've talked about many times, but when you are uh, meaning to apply a positive punisher for a behavior, but you end up uh, negatively reinforcing some incompatible behavior. And I think the most obvious example that people can probably conceptualize in their mind is say the dog countersurfing. Most people are going to give the dog a collar pop or something like that to get rid of that behavior. But if as you go over to do it, the dog gets all four feet on the floor and then you choose not to because the dog's no longer doing it, 
Well, then the pressure that you have done used in the past to do that is for sure negative reinforcement. The dog knew like, oh, well, there is a way to stop this pressure from coming. Or usually like, especially we see this quite a bit with dogs who have been taught with compulsion, like a place command or something like that. So if the dog has a bed in the house that it has been taught, you know, whether it's leash pressure or a collar or whatever, it doesn't matter. However, the dog's been taught to like go to that particular place. If when the dog does something that you don't want him to do and you intend to apply a punisher, like collar pop, and the dog retreats then to that place, then you know for sure that that dog interpreted that pressure as negative reinforcement and it went to that place. And very often, like if it is counter surfing and the dog is like trying to eat from the counter, you go over to stop him and he runs over to his bed. You can be sure that is him escaping the pressure. And now he can start doing the motivational maths on that. Like he can start to determine like, you know, well, what's on that counter? How long will it take for you to get here? Can I get to the bed where I'm safe from the pressure before you can get to me? What's my motivation to do both? And he can start doing the maths on this. And, and like I say, for the most part, it doesn't really matter. A lot of people use negative reinforcement when they actually mean to use punishment and they'll never know that the dog is escaping pressure rather than avoiding it. Mm. It only becomes an issue when the dog, you know, for starters can end up playing that spicy game of negative reinforcement where he's like, well, this is fun. Like, can I get the behavior that you don't want me to do. Can I get that done in time before you try and stop me? Or what is the sort of, you know, more of a problem is when that behavior can't be completed. So the behavior that's been taught with negative reinforcement can't be expressed. And, and the example I like to always use in that is usually fence fighting or something like that. A dog that barks at the, the fence. Most of the time, a dog that is doing that has also had pressure used in some other form. Maybe it's loose leash walking. Maybe the dog's been taught a recall with the e-collar. You know, there could be lots of different ways the dog has prior to that session in its life experience pressure. And so when the dog does the thing that we're trying to punish away, i.e. fence fighting, barking at people going past, whatever it is, people will apply pressure. The dog will end up kind of loitering right near them. And before too long in your session, when you're trying to get the dog to do the wrong thing, it just won't. And you could diagnose that as being like, okay, I've sorted this out. But in every instance where you see people doing that, the dog then starts hanging around them. The dog just doesn't keep just kicking around in the yard, you know, living his best life, doing whatever he wants. He usually then starts, you find that he starts loitering around the handler very close by. Mm. And, and in my mind, that's usually means that the pressure that the dog perceives that has been stopping him from doing the thing that we're meaning to stop him, i.e. fence fighting or whatever, it's actually been compelling him. It's been perceived by the dog as negative reinforcement to hang around with you. And ipso facto, that also means that they can't fence fight while that's happening. So that's all fine. You, that, that'll never be an issue until the dog has the opportunity to fence fight and you're not around. Mm. And so then the dog goes, well, okay, like the trigger for the behavior of retreating to you is the thing that you know previously used to trigger fence fighting, the, the stimulus comes past, whether it's another dog or whatever it is, that sets the dog to the point where he goes, okay, I need to escape and avoid the pressure that will come. I need to run to the handler. He searches for the handler and the handler's not there. That can cause two issues. That could cause like, you know, a large amount of stress in the dog because the dog then thinks, well, I can't escape this inevitable pressure that will come. So you can get some anxieties that will come of that. Sure. But then the other concern is that then the dog realizes, well, I can't turn it off. Also, you're not here to give it to me. So there's no point. And then he'll continue fence fighting and, mm. and doing the behavior. And so in your absence, it will continue. That's what I mean. So like for the most part, I think that the conversation around is it negative reinforcement is a punishment. It, it For the most part and for most people, it doesn't really matter because they're going to apply a pressure and it's going to have the desired outcome that they want. And what which basket you put that into, like there's a right and a wrong one. And, and with a lot of analysis, you could figure it out. 
but it's only when it's not having the outcome that you want. Then you have to look at it and go, okay, well then perhaps this pressure has been perceived by the dog as being something other than what I wanted to have him understand. Mm. But I think what, what's of note is in both of my examples there, they're both to get rid of behaviors. They're not when they're problematic behaviors. They're not teaching behaviors. They're not like, you know, teaching obedience or anything like that. Well, negative part, reinforcement, you could consider that as a teaching moment for the dog. No, but I mean, the two examples I gave there, like oh, the fixing two, yes. counter okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. and yep. uh, fence fighting, both of those are just like, I want this behavior gone. Yeah. And so the case is that you really want to be more careful and use punishment more accurately and, and have the dog understand that this is a pressure that can only be avoided. It can't be escaped. But for the most part, when we're teaching the dog stuff, loose leash walking, healing, sit down, you know, stand, all of the monkey drills that we would teach a dog to do, the pressure that you're going to do within there is, I think, from my point of view, is almost certainly going to be negative reinforcement. The only time that I'm going to be tipping into punishment in that time is where the dog shows me like, I know what you asked me for. I know the reinforcer that is available to me for having done that behavior However, I choose not to do it because I'm more interested in something else, right? So like my motivation lies elsewhere. So in that moment, for sure, that's where punishment is the right thing to do. Mm. That That's the time to say to the dog, like, hey, you can't do that. That's disobedience. And your motivation towards that other thing is not about, like you, you shouldn't be expressing that currently. But then also... I for sure then want to go back to the drawing board and assess like, okay, why did the motivation that I was leveraging from the dog fail, right? Like why is it that what I had and was offering as positive reinforcement was the dog chose not to take and why in that moment did I have to use some form of compulsion in order to get what I wanted to happen? I need to reassess that. Now that's not to say that it's like I don't agree with doing it. But it for sure tells me that I need to look at like, okay, what else is not here now, but for next time, what other gaps can I fill to avoid having to use this again? I've got to jump in there. I've got a question to ask on that. And I think this is a very important question too, is do you think that there isn't already leagues of dogs that don't fill that description? What do you mean? Which description? The description of a dog that is shifting through motivational sequences, like it suddenly into what you've got, but then can easily shift to something else. Yeah, for sure. And if that's the case, I would want to address that prior to teaching the dog anything. For me personally, that's what I would rather do. Look, I agree with that. I think that, you know, I've heard you talk about this on motivation before, and I certainly agree with it. However, I feel that that is probably an easier said than done scenario in a lot of cases, because this is the, let's call them the family dogs, since we had chat on last week, let's call them the family dogs. I find that they're the dogs that nobody else really wants to train because they don't look good. They're not the dogs that pay attention. They're not the dogs that come over easily. They're not the dogs that generate good responses and therefore get the five-star tick at the end of the day. It's not to say that there isn't something that we can find variations in motivation with. I mean, you've worked with this and I certainly have. I tell stories on the course all the time about, you know, there's always something, there's a way to find a motivation. You know, when we go back to the rabbit foot story that I tell in NDTF and even Dom, when he first started with me, when he was using feathers that he used, had to use to help his dog learn how to find its motivation when he was teaching his complex skill. He just could not find anything else that would keep his dog's interest. And I mean, he had to work like a fucking Spartan to find something that turned the dog on, that switched it on. And that just goes to show for some people that they've got something that the dog is partially interested in, but then it can easily switch and it can dial out of what you're actually trying to do with the dog. 
people have said food and they've gone on and starved their dog for multiples of days and then still find that it's not working and then they switch to toys and then they come back to YouTube and then they hear, well, you know, they hear you and me talking about how you should be able to find it all the time. But for some of these dogs, they're like some children that exist out there that just learn differently than other kids, you know, like they struggle in school. They've got things like dyslexia where they can't read properly. And I mean, I know there's treatments and I know there's ways that they can get through it. But there are those dogs out there too that sometimes, and when people think about when I'm talking about corrections, they probably think, oh, well, that sounds harsh that you'd want to use a correction with a dog like that, like a positive punisher. But sometimes it helps the dog get out of its own way, like helps it just stop overthinking about the situations, come back to reality and start realizing, let's focus on being here and now. Instead of being in the past, instead of like forecasting into the future what you can do, let's focus more about what's actually happening right here, right now. I think the way that I've been trying to describe it and maybe doing a poor job, but I'm not sure, but the way that I try to describe it is I want the dog to empty its head of every other thought that's going on. And yeah, I want the dog to be involved in the motivation. I don't really want to be giving dogs positive punishment or talking about corrections. I mean, it's a really unsavory topic with most people when you start talking about it. People get a real hard on for punishment or anything these days. It's just sold badly across the world, mainly by people who have no idea what they're talking about and are not training the sort of dogs that really need it anyway. But when they do need it and when they are in the way of themselves and when you do happen to get them a moment of clarity where you can say, stop doing this, stop having those thoughts, get out of your way, come back to reality. I need you to focus on what's going on here. This is what you need to do. And I think for me, when I'm seeing some of the dogs that I see and when I'm speaking to some of the people that I'm speaking to are going out training these type of dogs, That's a big issue that they're having is because, yeah, they're searching for the right motivators, but they keep having the same sort of question. I've spoken about it with Panos. I've spoken about it with a varying degree of different people where they say, yeah, look, it works. And, you know, you certainly have those dogs. They really switched on. They tune in quite nicely. We, you know, start finding a very beautiful motivation cycle that the dogs will be cooperative, but then there's these other dogs that's the unfortunate side for me. I just feel that there is a legion of those dogs. There's a lot of them out there and there's a lot of owners that suffer through this because then they think, well, is it me? Am I the problem? Sometimes it is. Sometimes they don't work hard enough. Sometimes they're not as astute as what they could be in finding an appropriate motivator, but sometimes it's just not them. Sometimes it's purely the dog that they've got there. And I think you and I've talked about this. It may have been you and me having the discussion the other day where sometimes you've just said just a correction and telling the dog, hey, pull your head in and get back to reality, like snap back to it. Sometimes I really find that that is the linchpin to moving forward with some of these dogs. Yeah, no, I agree. But I think we're still splitting hairs on the form yeah. of pressure. I think that I would in the learning, but like, you know, as I'm prepping to even begin to teach these dog things that the first couple of sessions is going to be like, this is how you respond to pressure and the release of pressure. Like if the dog doesn't want anything that I have, right? Like if I, if the dog's not food motivated and I can't get a game going with the dog, he's not interested in toys. The pressure that I'm going to use is going to be like, I'm going to try and create a game out of that negative reinforcement. I'm going to try and create like a find the path out of this. I'm still going to try and dial the dog in so that if I lose the dog, like if the dog goes like, now I'm looking over here, I'm not interested in this. I'm zoning out to over here. The pressure that I use at that point is going to bring the dog back in on me. And so I'm still going to put that into the category of negative reinforcement. Like it's because I'm going to stop it. The moment that the dog re-engages with me, I'm going to turn off that pressure. 
So I'm still going to call that like negative reinforcement, but it's going to be into like engagement with me. When the times I'm going to say, yeah, no, for sure I'm using punishment is when the dog deliberately does something wrong rather than just isn't doing the right thing. You know what I mean? Like, and so that's where I draw the distinction between like, if, if I ask a dog to do something and I can tell that it's not paying attention to what I am asking of it, I'm going to look and say like, is it because it's intently focused on getting something else? Or am I going to say that is the dog just not interested in what I'm doing, right? Is it not really interested in anything? And it's just sort of zoning out from that time. Because if it is intently focused on something else, then that's a time when I can say, okay, this is positive punishment. Because I can say, that's not for you at this time. That That's not where you're headed. But if the dog is just sort of not paying attention to me, I'm going to dial that dog in. Mm. And it might, you know, I'm going to use motivation. Now, like when I say I'm going to use motivation in a dream world, I want that to be as positive as possible, but it also might be negative reinforcement. It might be that like, I need you to stay dialed in with me because I'm going to annoy you. If you don't, I'm going to bring you back in via the leash and collar. If you're just checking out and you're not engaged within the session. I get it. I know a lot of people aren't on board with the way that I explain that building the motivation first, because they say, well, I'm working with dogs that I don't want a super flashy, powerful behaviors. I just need, these are pet dogs. I just need to be able to do the things. I agree. I'm like, yeah, but you still need the dog to be a willing participant in the session. Yeah. You're use I agree a lot, with that. Still going to use a lot less compulsion. It's still going to be a lot easier to manage and you're going to get a much better product when the dog goes like, Hey, I'm interested in this. I want what you have. And even if it's not a toy that you have or food that you have or some game that you're going to play. I want to stay dialed in with you for some form of connection. And I think that the investment in the time to do that, I think it will pay dividends. And then the pressure that I would use to bring the dog back from zoning out is going to be just from like zoning in with me. That's where I'm going to turn it off. And so I put that in the category of negative reinforcement. But as I say, I think that what you and I would actually do would be almost identical. It's just the way in which we describe it. And I think that's a really big topic at the moment within the dog space is that How we a lot of the times, things, yeah. yeah, well, mm. you know, you and I are just splitting hairs on what we're calling pressure, right? Like whether it's, we're calling it positive punishment or negative reinforcement. We're like largely, I mean, we've been trained together for 10 years or something, Glenn, like mm. we mm. largely do the same thing when we train. It's rare that you would ever do something that I look at and go, I wouldn't do that or that you would do the same to me. I don't think. But I think that it's the way that we describe things. It can sound really different. And I think that's what we see a lot of. That's what we see tons of online. That's what we see a bunch of people who are often at appeasing their audience by saying the words that they know that won't get them into trouble or that they say a bunch of things that they, they, they create a fantasy world around the way that they train dogs. When in reality, if you would actually watch them, you would go, oh yeah, like you're using negative reinforcement, using positive punishment, doing all the normal things. You're, you're using positive reinforcement after the behavior is complete. You're compelling the behavior in one way or another. They're using spatial pressure. They're you're restricting dogs access to things. So that goes in the category of negative punishment. Like they're doing all the normal things, but they use very different words because those words have such strong connotations. And then the problem is they often then then say, well, I'm anti-punishment or I would never use punishment. Or they might refer to themselves as a plus R only trainer. Because as you said, like when you're, when you're saying I'm going to punish that dog, like that gives people big feelings, right? Like mm. it upsets people. It makes them not want to take on the information sometimes. But in reality, most trainers, if they're being successful, they're having to do that. I think that, you know, every trainer, when they're teaching a dog to do anything, 
is going to have to use some healthy doses of negative reinforcement and some healthy doses of punishment in both of its forms in order to be successful. Now, what tools they'll use along the way and how that will actually look might be slightly different. For sure, it will be slightly different, but they're going to have to do those things in order for the training to be successful or or that just isn't going to be successful. So there are plenty of people that don't use them, but they're not successful in their training. Their training doesn't go anywhere. They don't actually you know, cross the line with the dog. They don't ever achieve the goal of the, the dog and the client. But the people that do, no matter what label they give themselves, they have to use those things because there's no other way. Like mm. there just isn't another way. But they don't use the words and they wouldn't explain it in the same way that we're explaining it. I definitely agree with you about what you were saying about motivation before. There's certainly no argument with me about that because I'm a huge advocate of building relationships first with dogs rather than just leaping into any forms of punishment that aren't necessary and are often done badly because people don't understand them and they're a little bit overzealous with them to start with. Earlier on when you were talking about the use of punishments, I think I made it clear at the start, if I didn't, I probably should establish that during any type of learning or teaching, especially when you're teaching new actions, as I may or may not have said, I can't recall now, but I, I do want to establish and I do want to make it very clear to everybody who's listening to this that if I'm teaching a dog a behavior, I would absolutely not use a positive punishment during a teaching or a learning phase for an action-based skill. So anything like sits, drops, recalls, complex skills training or anything like that. I mean, how can you punish something that's not clearly established that the participant, the student, the dog or whatever you want to call it, hasn't got any form of idea or even a muddy idea about what's actually going on, how could you punish them? How could you live with yourself by using, a, let's say, a positive punisher? Because certainly negative punishment's going to happen. So I should make that clear, that negative punishment, withholding or even going away is going to happen, you know, for the dog being unclear or struggling during an exercise or losing motivation or losing focus or whatever you want to call it. During that period of time, forms of negative punishment, even if you don't want to call it that, the dog will probably perceive it as that because it'll be thinking, well, why did this end? Well, it ends because you need to think about what's going on here. Clearly, your motivation is depleting or it's dropped off or it's changed direction or whatever it may be. So punishment to that degree will certainly happen. But when I'm talking about positive punishment, when I'm talking about the use of firm corrections or something like that, that won't happen until the dog has graduated. And this is why I wanted to make it clear about what a transition is, because the dog has transitioned from one phase, like learning or teaching it. So you are teaching it or the dog is learning how to understand and comprehend that. But now we're talking about the dog fully transitioning over. So showing awareness, I think this is what it is. Even then, even then, we wouldn't be talking about using positive punishments. I wouldn't anyway. What I would be is when the dog has comprehension of what it is. I totally agree with you, Pat. There is a lot of times when we're doing training, and again, to reinforce what you were saying before, you and I are so similar in what we do. We've been through many of the schools of thought together. We talk about things with each other quite frequently. We've done this podcast for years. You've certainly done gold and silver school with Bart far more than I have, but we've done that together as well. We've been to many of the same seminars, we've debated things, we've listened to other people's teaching, and we certainly agree on those things as well. To be honest, it's not me coming up here to try and say, well, you know, like I have a clear definition and you don't. It's just thoughts that bounce around in my head when I'm seeing a lot of the pet slash family type of dogs that we're dealing with, when they are in comprehension mode, when they do understand, when they've graduated from learning the behavior and they're fully into it, And you know that if you see the dog do a sit, 
that dog will do that sit, let's say nine out of 10 times or 10 out of 10 times, that dog will do the behavior. But then you start going through a variation where the dog will test. Sometimes it will decide, yeah, I'm going to do it five out of 10 times today. And then you might say to yourself, well, what motivation am I lacking in? Or have I then graduated the dog beyond its scope of retention at this point in time because I've taken it outside the Skinner box? And did I try and then move outside the phase of training and inside to the phase of proofing the dog? Have I pushed the dog too far then? And as the operator, as the trainer, that's something that you need to recollect your thoughts and say, well, I've pushed the dog beyond its comprehension point at this time. That's totally my fault. Giving the dog a correction at this point would be totally unreasonable and extremely unfair to the dog because it's my problem, not the dog's. I've done something that is too far beyond what the dog has done. We've lost cohesion. We've lost traction with each other. There is no point in pushing it forward any point in time. Kick yourself up the ass. Give yourself a correction for doing those sort of things. I certainly have. I'm pretty hard on myself when I do things like that because I think to myself, I've taken the dog to a point where we lost momentum with each other. However, getting back into that middle section where I know that, and I'll speak of, you know, my dog. So Randy, for example, sometimes there are points in times where I've got the motivators that he wants. I keep him hungry. He's ready to eat or he wants his ball. And then there are other times where he's just shifting phases with what he's about to do. So during those times, I certainly give him a positive punishment. Like I give him the correction to say, stop and collect your thoughts, clear your mind, get back to what we're doing. You need to be focused and you need to be committed to what I want you to do right here and right now. And again, I know we can talk about the splitting hairs, but in my mind at those point in times when that is happening, when I'm do that to him, I would define that as a positive punisher because I'm not asking him to do the behavior. What I'm saying to him is just stop and think and stop what you're doing because everything is going haywire at the moment and you need to center yourself and you need to collect your thoughts and you need to get back to reality, back to what we're doing now. Then when I've got him and then when I can see that I have his attention, then I give him the opportunity. Then I say to him, I give the command, sit or drop or whatever it may be. And then I generally find I have full compliance out of him. And then we go through the rewarding principle and then we don't have to worry about that again because we've got through it. And I feel that every now and then those little jogs, those little reminders get our dogs back on track and then they can center themselves. And as I said before, I find that they get out of their own way at that point in time. They're not preoccupied by everything that's going on or trying to look for something else or feeling that that behavior is okay to do because they've done it before, they've experimented with it, and now it's okay because nobody really did anything for from it before. The, you know, like whatever happened was pretty mild. They didn't have to think too much about it, so they, they were sort of allowed to segue into that line of thinking. That's the only thing that I want to stop with the dog so I can get back into pragmatic and practical thinking again. Yeah, I agree with that. I think when I'm deciding what sort of pressure I'm going to use when I'm using pressure, it's really going to be, do I want you to not do that or do I want you to do this? Yeah. Like that's really what it comes down to is if the dog, let's be super specific. If I'm, you know, we did it just the other night when we were training, I put my dog in a down and I said to the decoys, agitate him. I want to bring his level of arousal up. But if he barks while he's in that down, I want you to stop immediately, turn your backs on him. And then it didn't happen. So I didn't have to do the punishment, but I had intended to punish him for barking. If he did in that moment, he didn't do it. But what I would have done 
is I would have then got them to turn around and like walk away from him and remove themselves. There's the negative punishment component. Mm, yep. And I would have gone over and I would have taken him by the collar out of the down. I would have moved him away from where he was, would have been a timeout in place with my own dog at that point. The amount of positive punishment I would have to use at that point would be tiny. It would be like a couple of tiny pops on the prong because that really to him is icing on the cake. It's mm. that he lost everything. It lost his access to the session. And so that would be highly punishing to the dog. But in that moment, if he had popped up into a sit, then I would have used negative reinforcement to push him back into the down, right? So like the barking was off the table. I don't want barking. But if he had done the wrong thing in that moment, then I would have like compelled him back into the right thing. So I think that's like where I draw the distinction. Again, it's sort of semantics. The only difference is like there's different outcomes. Like if you remained in the down and bark, that's something I don't want to happen. Mm. But if, if you popped into the sit, then that would have just been like anticipation of going after them. And I don't want like, well, I don't want that to happen. And if it was happening continually, then I would consider punishing it. But for the, the most part in that time, I would have gone over and be like, put him back into the down rather than punishing him for breaking the down in that moment. If he'd gone after the decoy, that would be cause for punishment. Then that means that he's doing specifically a thing that he's not meant to do. He's trying to reinforce himself. And I'm you know, saying like, no, you have to coil that spring in that position. So I think that's how I draw the distinction. Is the dog doing something I don't want or is he not doing something that I do want him to do? That's where I would then draw the distinction between using compulsion of negative reinforcement or punishment. One thing for sure is that I, I prefer to, if I'm going to use punishment, is to stack like negative punishment mm. and positive punishment together. Yep. yep. But I find by doing that, the amount of positive punishment I have to use is minuscule really. And of course that depends on the dog and the situation, but in the more motivation that I have, the more keen the dog is to be in the session, mm. then that means the the more effective my negative punishment can be. And I think it's worth making the distinction and pointing out is that negative punishment, while it's easier on the dog and certainly it feels nicer to do because there's no force involved in it, right? Like I'm not, there's no pain compliance. Let's use the big boy words, right? There's no pain compliance it works more effectively. Therefore it is more aversive. So when, when people think like, it's not any kinder really, like, I think that's the reality of it. Mm. Like I think people think that it's a kinder thing to do and, and it isn't necessarily kinder because it is more aversive. It works better. It's a far more aversive experience to a dog when the motivation is in place. Like, yep. Now if the motivation isn't there, if the dog's not desperately wanting something that is available to it, if it's not desperately trying to get something, then it's very hard actually at that point to even identify what it is that you could take from the dog in order to use negative punishment. Well, in some of those cases, they actually cross the threshold into negative reinforcement because they think they're punishing the dog and the dog's been reinforced for taking out of the situation it really didn't want to be in. Totally. One, totally. one point that you said before, I just want to circle back on it once again, is use the word effective punishment. And I think that key word, that, that word itself, effective in both reinforcement and punishment is absolutely paramount in my mind when I'm thinking about using either one of those because I've, I really find that it's absolutely insidious how people will fuck around with either one of them and never really get clear definitions with their own dog on what it is being reinforced for and what it is being punished for. There is no effectiveness there. Like they're playing this 
ridiculous game of tic-tac-toe with their dog where they're never really getting anywhere but they believe they are in their own head or they've talked themselves into feeling good about the situation because they're avoiding using effective punishers. And as you said before, I mean, some of these negative punishments you can use on dogs and stacking these negative punishments, which people do so willingly and it's become more of a trend that they're fundamentally unaware of what they're doing. That is just crazy sometimes. I mean, some of these punishments that we're using on dogs and even advocating for because it sounds much better when you sell it to the crowd, it just has this compounding psychological blowback that really causes some fuckery with the dog. And it can even be really bond diminishing kind of stuff before. I totally agree with you. And I really, I'm glad you use that word because I wanted to really, I wanted to bring it up and I forgot about it was that word effective in uses of reinforcement and punishment. I think once you're effective in either one of those, then you can really start transgressing into new territories and start making the dog understand like how to actually learn and how to feel comfortable learning around you. We're not talking about not letting dogs make mistakes. There is no such thing as an error-free environment. Error is a part of learning. It's how a dog or how a student, how a human comprehends what they're doing and what they should be doing better or what they can be avoiding by doing. So I never want my dog to feel that it can't make mistakes with me. I want my dog to learn life is about making some mistakes, but just not going back and choosing to repeat them or looking for the territory that the mistake kept occurring in all the time. I want my dog to develop a sense of clarity where it says, okay, we've been down that path. I know you don't like this. I kind of do, but I know you don't. So I've accepted, you've made it clear to me, this is the consequence for what happens. And anytime I've tried to revisit it, you've upscaled it. I'm prepared to leave it behind. That's what I want my dog to do. I want my dog to be aware of that. I want that to be sitting in the back of its mind. Like I really want to do that behavior, like it's attractive to me, but in these situations, I can't. You've used this nicely before, like you've laid in this before where you've said what you can do is when you do give me these list of behaviors, I might let you do some of those behaviors, but there's certainly some of them that are just toxic to the relationship of what you're trying to build in in the obedience routine or even the developmental routine that the dog that you just have to think to yourself even rewarding the dog with these can be problematic at times. Like, yes, there's a lot of things I want my dog to feel like it has access to, but these ones in particular just will go nowhere. It will only cause like a breakdown in the understanding or it will really start to decay. Like the relationship will decay, but also other things that I'm trying to build will start to decay as well. Yeah. You know, I reckon negative punishment has been like really Grossly misunderstood, especially, oh, hell yeah. in the, especially in the balanced training community. Like I've heard people say, like sort of poo-poo the idea of negative punishment, even saying like, oh, what are you going to do? Give the dog a timeout. And I'm <laughs> like, yeah, that's exactly what I'm going to do. And to this dog, that's going to be horrific. And I think there's two edges to that sword. You know, I think that for many people, they don't realize how effective negative punishment can be probably because they're not really doing it. I think that it's grossly misunderstood. I know we've talked about it many times, but I think a lot of the times people use negative punishment or they like try and withhold something the dog never wanted. Like if you ask a dog to do something, you ask the dog to sit, it does, you click, you give it food, it knows the behavior, it knows the reinforcer at this point. You ask it again, it doesn't do it. Not giving it food in that moment is not negative punishment because it clearly didn't want the food. It knew that that was what was available. It knew that was the behavior that would lead to it. So not giving it to it is not negative punishment. And so I think that's how like people have 
oversimplified it and dumbed it down to being so wishy-washy like that. And that actually is not what it is at all. And, and I think one of the other things that it gets quite misunderstood is that most people sort of finish a session if it's negative punishment. And I know we've talked about this in the past, but that's really not the right way to use it. Negative punishment is much better done in place and then given the dog an immediate opportunity to rectify and go mm. like, okay, have another go. See if you understood. I think as well. So like people who say it's not very effective probably aren't doing it very well. Like don't actually understand it. But they don't do any and, of and it I, very well. They don't even do positive punishment well. And that's where it gets such a bad rap because it then transfers over to abuse. Like it, it isn't positive punishment. It's abuse. That's the problem. Yeah. Yeah. Or very often it, it ends up being negative reinforcement. It, but to carry on, I think then as well, many people who are really good with negative punishment and don't want to use any forms of positive punishment, they've put in the time and the energy to figure out the negative punishment component. Like I think that sometimes the punishment that they deliver is like it far exceeds the crime, mm. you know, like I think that that happens a lot as well. So like, that's one of the things I've, I've found this conversation many times because I've, you know, I, I still enjoy many people within the like plus R community who don't use any tools. And, and I find myself having this conversation many times with people about like, they say, well, you understand this stuff, Pat, like you get it. How come you still use the tools? And I find myself saying every time, because I don't want to be that horrific to my dog all the time. Like I don't want to put my dog through the extreme aversive nature of negative punishment when like a little collar pop to say, Hey, change course is much more effective to my dog. And he appreciates that. And he gets to carry on, you know, quicker. And so I think that it's grossly misunderstood at how aversive it is. And when people say, oh, it works, it works so well. That's right. It does. That's how punishment works. It's aversive. The mm. dog wants to avoid it. He wants it to never happen to him again. And so you can't necessarily say it's the better version because it works better. And, and it doesn't always work better. Like it, it depends on the dog, depends on the circumstance, depends on what the dog's trying to do. It can be very hard to do negative punishment. But when I do do negative punishment, when I use it, it's very intentional. Like I use it to a high degree of precision and I'm very thoughtful about how I do it. And I usually, if I find myself having to do it more than two or a third time, then I'm like, shit, something's not right here. Yeah. Like, there's a breakdown here. And I, I definitely am not going to continue. I'm going to limit their dog's ability to do the thing that it's getting wrong, or I'm going to end the session or whatever I'm going to do, because I don't want to continue doing this because it's not punishment at that point, right? Like something has been misunderstood. I think it's worth pointing out as well. I think that cancel culture, I think that we live in heavily at the moment, I think basically was created by a generation of kids that had their iPad taken off them. Yep. One of the things, man, this really gets me. Rip has an iPad. My son has an iPad. And when I gave him that iPad, I said, hey, I love you. Here's an iPad. And so if I were to take that iPad from him, that's not an iPad that I'm taking. That's love. You know? That's something much more significant. Mm. And I think that that's what a lot of people misunderstand when they try and use negative punishment in that way is that, they first of all, there has to be a relationship to leverage. But you're leveraging your relationship. And I think that if you keep doing that over and over, pretty soon, that's like if somebody kept leveraging you in that way, right? If somebody kept leveraging you over and over, it, pretty soon you'd be calling that a toxic relationship. That's not a healthy relationship to be in. And Ooh, so I think some that- Some psychological it, pearls there, Mr. Stewart. Yeah. Well, man, I think about this stuff a yeah, lot. I can tell. Like, I you can know, tell. beyond just dog training, I think mm. that, you know, because I, like, I really want, I want the understanding- you know, when I have to control a behavior now, whether, you know, with my dogs and with 
my children as well. Some things are just dangerous and you can't allow the dog or the child to continue doing it, right? You just have to put an end to it because we live in an artificial world and there's many dangers in that world. So I have to convey to the message to you like, hey, don't do that. And I need to do that in a way where you understand from me that it's an aversive thing that you shouldn't do rather than risk you finding out in a way that could lead to permanent injury or death if I allow you to do it and find out for yourself. Mm. So I do have to have ways, I have to have strategies for doing this kind of stuff, but I'm really thoughtful about the way that I do it when I need a behavior to be aversive and no longer be displayed because I need to do that in a way where there's clear understanding, but there's no hard feelings afterwards because mm. I'm not like I, I have no intention of damaging my relationship. I have no intention of hurting physically my, my learner what I want is that I, they understand, okay, I must not do that and not just learn to do something else with a higher value or a higher preference. Like, I think that's where we often fall over is we hear this, you know, differential reinforcement and all this kind of stuff. And, and I think what people don't realize, the differential reinforcement argument completely falls over when the thing that I don't, that I'm not allowing the dog to do in this moment is something that I need them to do powerfully in another moment. Because now the whole idea of like reinforcement history and all that kind of bullshit, it goes out the window because there is going to be a high reinforcement history in the behavior that I don't allow the dog to do until I give him permission to do it. And mm. if he does it without the permission, then my only opportunity in that moment is to use punishment. Now, it, like I say, for me, usually if I'm going to punish, I'll use the right amount, whatever that is, of negative punishment and positive punishment in the one punishment event in order that the dog understand it as clearly as possible. But there's many circumstances I can think of in that regard. Like one of them is if we're going to talk pet dogs, it's crossing the street. Like I can't have, my dog has to walk across the road, but I can't have him walking across the road given the opportunity to run into traffic, right? So I need to show like this has conditions. Yep. The conditions under which I say you are allowed, you're allowed, but without that permission, you can't. And if we go into working dog terms, it's like biting the decoy. Like I need the dog to know, like you only bite with my permission. Mm. And I'm going to tell you that there's clear guidance around that. And when people say, well, you just use differential reinforcement, there's no need to punish. It's like, yeah, that's cool. I totally get the theory behind that and the practicality of it, because sometimes it is possible, not often, but off, sometimes it is possible, whereby I can create a higher reinforcement history into an alternative behavior so that the dog chooses that one over the, the behavior I want to get rid of. But if I still need the dog to be able to do that behavior I want to get rid of, but on command and when the context is correct, then that all goes out the window. That that no longer applies to me because I'm going to be constantly creating a higher reinforcement history. And so these are the sorts of things that most people aren't having those conversations at that level and they're not picking these things apart. And we just take people at face value when they say, oh, we'll create a higher reinforcement history into something else. And it's like, yeah, okay, cool. But first of all, how do I do that? <laughs> right? And second, what if that's not possible? The other point that I think needs to be added in that is sometimes you're talking about the perfect learner as well. Like in a perfect world scenario, this all falls into place. Like everything falls neatly into place and it works beautifully. That's the common denominator. More often than not, that's the way it works. But sometimes there are outliers who don't fit that routine as well as what we'd like. It's not to say that it doesn't work and it means that you have to work harder but it just doesn't fit as nicely into the narrative as what you would expect it to. Mm. Hey, did we hit your topic? Did we cover what you wanted to cover? <laughs> or <laughs> we, did, we, did we bounce around too we, much? We off-railed, but that's fine. It, the topic was focusing on what a transition is, but it doesn't mean that anything else that we talked about wasn't as important or even more important as we've discovered. There are some 
clarifications and some thoughts around that because we do, and as we've said before, we work very closely with each other and we're around each other quite frequently, but yet there are, because of the schools that we've been through and just the schools of thought that we use variations in languages from time to time. It's not that we don't think extensively through some of this sometimes, but it is an interesting concept. It does warrant discussion. It does warrant community discussion as well. It's great when the entire community gets behind it and they start nutting it out and we start developing a better narrative of how we're actually going to do this. Something that you were talking about before is the relationship between you and the student, and that is very symbiotic. It has to be. It's not just about what you think and what's important to you, because if you go into any training session like that, you've completely disregarded the potential and the comprehension of the student that you're actually working with, and you've missed a great big chunk of what's important in that teaching slash learning scenario. That's happened for me plenty of times when I've been training human students before, when they've been coming here and doing courses, where I've gone in and I've just lectured a narrative. And as I found, there are people who learn differently, who think differently and who comprehend differently. I might get, you know, 12 to 14 students in here and I might get, let's say, 10, 11, 12 of them out of a 14 class group that are nodding their heads and they're all working along with me. And I'll get two of them who are sitting there and they're like, their eyes are rolling around in their head because what I've explained doesn't make any sense to them. And that Mm. is the, you know, that's the variation in what we see with dog training is because we'll get a group of people together. We'll develop a phrasing or a terminology point where everybody goes, Oh yeah, cool beans. I understand that. And then they go off and try and translate that to the dogs. And some of them get it really right. And some of them get it really wrong. And the proof is in the pudding. You know, as we say, we can talk about a lot of theory, but until you actually get out there and you're putting it into a pragmatic fashion when you're actually putting hands on dogs or taking dogs out on the fields or even when you're training human students, the proof is in the pudding when you see the means average of that group. I mean by when you look at the common number of what's actually been projected out of that What's actually understood, you'll see it in translation by what's actually being done. And when you can start seeing a lot of holes in that, as you pointed out when you're talking about your dog with things that don't seem to marry up, there are times where you need to look at it and say, there's something wrong with what I'm actually teaching here. There's a hole in my language. There's a hole in comprehension between my student and I. And those things are very important for you as the teacher to stop and think about this. And sometimes you just don't have the answer. The reason you're stuck with this problem is because you don't have the answer right then and then. You're not supposed to have the answers to everything. This is why it's so important for us to use these network groups, which we want to encourage people to be in, is because we need to talk about this as often as we need to so we can comprehend it better. I certainly find this when we get the student groups in, there are people that do block one, they're all nodding their head, they're all giving the thumbs up, they're saying, yeah, sure, yep, we're ready, we're looking good for block two, and they come back to block two and they get halfway through the group and you know you can start seeing the confidence drop off because what they said they understood, they really didn't understand the way they said. So it's important for the teacher, the person who's instructing or even the dog owner, if you want to call it that, whatever that person is, It's important for them to understand, does my student really get me and does it really translate well to them and do I get them? Have I taken time to look into my student a little bit more rather than just dictating these actions or these learnings that I've had? Do I really comprehend this and do they comprehend me? 
and it will be projected in the work. As they say, the proof is in the pudding. Yeah, for sure. To expand on that, I think certainly on the topic of punishment, it's one of the things like, you know, I taught a class up in Brisbane last week. Yeah, you talk about punishment, you can explain it and people have, like it has a certain connotation. People Mm. expect to see something terrible. For example, hopefully I can find a video of this. I'm not sure whether I was filming, but like I'll try and find it and post it in the discussion group if I do. Like there was a part where I had this shepherd and you're proofing just not going for the ball after it was dropped on the floor so the dog would maintain a sit, you know? And so I dropped the ball and the dog goes for it, obviously. And all I did was say to the dog, like, hey, don't do that. And turned around with the dog on leash. It hits the end of the leash because it's trying to get the ball, but not like I'm popping on the leash. And it's just on the flat collar. And I turn around and walk like three meters in the opposite direction and just look at the dog for 10 seconds. And I'm like, hey, don't break the position. And then, oh, okay, you got it. All right, let's go back around. And we get back and we start again. And then I said to the everybody watching, I was like, okay, so that's the punishment that we talked about. And everyone's like, no, that's not punishment. You're meant to helicopter the dog and slam it into the ground. Yeah, but you know what I mean? Because that's the idea that's of the what bu- punishment. That's the abuse that they're used to and they're yeah. thinking of. They're, they're thinking. But that's what they've been told it is. Well, punishment reality, projects like, into no. worst case scenario. That's the thing. That's the thing that upsets me is that anytime you try and have a conversation with people about punishment, it creates such aversive sensitivities in them. Because social media, the media, or whomever has projected worst case scenario, like the most violent and abusive responses to any form of outcome. And that's what people project in their minds. As you said before, it's terrible. And that that is truly insidious that people are thinking like that. Yeah. And I'll, like, as I explained, no, we created an aversive experience. The dog did the wrong thing, like chose not to sit anymore and go after the ball. Mm. And I created an aversive experience whereby like the dog actually lost ground. Like it made its own situation worse by doing that. And so that goes in the category of punishment. And like that, I think is worth saying, hopefully I have the video. I'll put it in the discussion group if I do, because that is worth understanding. You know, that's what we mean. Punishment. It doesn't have to be this horrific thing that people always think that it is. Mm. That's probably the place to leave it. It is the place to leave it. It was an intense conversation, but one that I enjoyed. That's it for another episode, Canon Paradigm. Yeah. As always, if you like what you hear, like, rate, share, subscribe, do all that through the subscription service download us from. Get on the mailing list. That's what we need. We need need a link. I need a link for it. I need a link so I can put it in the show notes. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll send that to you and I'll post it in the discussion group as well. I'll yeah. do that immediately. Yes, please. Do that. Get on the mailing list. Uh, cool information coming out there. If you want to support the show, the best way to do that is jump into Patreon. A few bucks a month, get your extra episode that goes in there all the time, as well as some really cool stuff going forward. We've got this giant backlog of information in there and I do a live stream once a month as well, answering questions. Whatever questions you got, you can put them in there. All kinds of cool stuff on Patreon. You could give us as much or as little money as you like or none, whatever. It's up to you. Well, we have had a drop in Patreon at the moment. Have we? We have. We have had a drop. So I think when every time you say give us as little, I think they're listening to you. (laughs) (laughs) All right, give us heaps. Give us heaps. The other way you can support the show is getting some cool merch. Jump into Spring. There's links in the show notes to that. That's it for the ways you can support the show. Tell a friend. That's the real way you can support the show. Yeah. Tell as many people as you can. Get people to in real life to listen. If you want to get in contact with us, best way to do that is jump into the discussion group or join our mailing list. There'll be links everywhere. And if you want to shoot us an email, we are info at thecanonparadigm.com. Goodbye. <laughs>